Hello and welcome to the Harvard Center for International Development's weekly podcast. Over the last eight years, the Syrian civil war has left millions of people internally displaced and many more have fled the country to protect themselves and their families. This humanitarian crisis has left the region and its people to face incredible challenges in their everyday lives. Andrew Mitchell, British Member of Parliament and former Secretary of State for International Development, considers the situation to be a catastrophe from which the international community can learn many lessons on how to support those in the country as well as refugees throughout the world. Today on CID Speaker Series podcast, Nawal Khatoub, student at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, interviews Andrew Mitchell, who discusses the humanitarian crisis in Syria following the civil war and how the international community can assist with rebuilding the country once peace has been restored. Thank you very much for your talk today. The title of your talk today was Syria, the Catastrophe. I'd like to start with why you chose this particular title. I think that what has happened in Syria is the most profound catastrophe in the world today. That's not to say there aren't others. Of course, what is happening in Yemen at the moment is deeply disturbing, where Britain and America are complicit in a famine of biblical proportions. But the thing about Syria, which marks it out as the catastrophe of our time, is the sheer scale of human misery that the war has exported, not only around the Middle East, but into Europe. So you've got a country of 22 million people at the start of the fighting, of whom nearly half now are displaced. It's a quite extraordinary number. Five million of them inside Syria are internally displaced. Five million of them are in the four surrounding countries in Lebanon, Turkey, Iraq and Jordan. And one can only marvel at the generosity of the people of Turkey and Jordan in taking in these Syrians and looking after them. And then there's a million of them who've made their way across the Mediterranean towards Europe, often in a very unstructured way, putting themselves into the hands of the modern-day equivalent of the slave trader, embarking on a leaky boat in the hope of tipping up on a safer and more prosperous shore. And then, once they get to Europe, wandering up through the Balkans in the hope of making their way to a country that will receive them. So, so in terms of the humanitarian consequences of the fighting, Quite apart from the geopolitical consequences, it's the humanitarian disaster that marks it out as a catastrophe and from which the world will need to learn a lot of lessons, not only about how international humanitarian law operates and how you treat migrants, but about the whole business of migration because there are 64 million people in the world today who are dispossessed, who've been driven from their homes. And the structures that we use, the articles, the laws, the conventions, which were set up in a very different time, are simply not fit for purpose in dealing with today's migratory trends. Have you always seen the situation as a catastrophe, or have your views changed in the years since the Syrian civil war began? Well, when the Syrian civil war began, I was in government in Britain. And so I saw for myself the humanitarian consequences starting to unfold. And I suppose what's changed is that they are frankly worse than we anticipated at that point. And we did look towards the future, we did see the scale of people leaving Syria. And in Britain we put our money where our mouth was and a lot of British taxpayers' money has gone into helping the people in the camps surrounding Syria, 
Indeed, Britain has produced more taxpayers' funding to help refugees in camps in the region and inside Syria than the whole of the rest of the European Union countries added together. So the scale is bigger than I realised at the time. And my views have hardened as I've seen the cynical disregard for international humanitarian law of particularly the Russians, but also other parties to this conflict and the sheer barbarity and of course the complications of the ISIL state set up, the caliphate set up um, under the leadership of al-Baghdadi in Mosul. So it's really the scale of what has happened has changed in the time that I've been following this and, and within the UK Parliament trying to move the situation onwards. So you mentioned Britain's uh, contribution If you could tell us more, how are countries like Britain trying to help the situation? And is there support for refugees? What about support for Syrians who are still living in their country? Well, in respect of those who are still living in their country, we, we do try to help. We've tried to help get food and healthcare medicines to communities which are cut off. It's difficult because the law is such that helping with food and resources in an area where fighting is taking place is absolutely necessary but it's fraught with legal danger because under our laws and your laws if that help falls into the hands of, of terrorists and fighters the people who are supplying that support are liable in both Britain and in America and, and the law sometimes isn't very helpful in that respect but certainly Britain has been using its taxpayers' resources to help those inside, as well as outside. As I say, our contribution, I think, is exceptional in terms of the camps surrounding Syria and the help that we have, have given. And that help has been very necessary because some of the international support pledged by countries to the United Nations from the wealthier world simply has not been delivered. And that is very bad. It feeds through directly to the amount of nutrition that's available for children and adults in these camps. And so Britain has been there for them, so I think we can be very proud of that. In terms of taking Syrians into Britain, we've agreed to take 20,000 over four years. We are open to criticism that we haven't taken more. But I take, I take a, a view that would not be universally popular in Britain about this. I think that we have a duty to reach out a hand to help people who are in crisis. But we don't have a, a duty to repatriate them to our country. And the whole thrust of British development policy, and Britain is a leader in the international world on, on development, is to try and build safer and more prosperous communities over there so that people don't feel the need to come to another country, that they can make their life, make their way in their own country, and the international community is behind them and building up there their country. So I'm not a fan of the argument that we should be bringing people to Britain. Indeed, I think if we had a policy of bringing people to Britain, it adds as a pull factor, and it means that more people will be desperate to get across the Mediterranean, will put themselves into the hands of these modern-day slave traders, because they see the opportunity of the lottery of getting into a more wealthy country. We shouldn't be doing that. We should be trying to keep people as close as possible to the areas from which they've been driven. And then, hopefully, when the fighting stops and peace comes, they can return to their country and not remain in exile or in another country. And as I mentioned in my talk today, you know, I remember meeting six doctors in Coventry 
all of whom were making a great contribution to the British NHS and to healthcare in Britain and who wanted to stay in Britain. But I couldn't help thinking that given the lack of doctors in Syria, how essential they will be to the rebuilding of that country and how, in a way, our good fortune in having their skills and services in Britain is at the expense of what they could be doing when Syria is at peace and the country is being rebuilt. Speaking of the international community, what do you think is the role of major international players? How can they contribute? I think, firstly, we should be generally supporting the peace process that is taking place in Astana and in Geneva. Those directly engaged in that peace process are, of course, the combatants under the guidance of Iran, Turkey and Russia, who are holding the ring in the peace process and the negotiations which are taking place. So they are the first port of call and the international community should be supporting those negotiations. And although for many of us it's difficult to work with the Iranians and the Russians after what has happened, it's the duty of the international community to try and get the best out of these negotiations and to support the process. So that's the first thing we can be doing. And once the negotiations are concluded and there is light at the end of the tunnel, then the international community needs to put its shoulder to the process of rebuilding Syria. This country has got to be rebuilt for the benefit of peace in the region, international peace, and for the benefit of the people who live in Syria. And we must ensure that that is a process which attracts people back to Syria. The 50% of the population now displaced or outside of Syria need to be wooed back. And the international community needs to make it clear that we will do everything we can to speed up the process once peace has come. And Britain has already put a billion pounds on the table, 1.3 billion dollars. We've made it clear that we see that as a fundamental commitment from us. It's a commitment that David Cameron made when he was Prime Minister. And other countries also need to step up to the plate to help because it's in their national interest that Syria attains a peace, their national interests as well as those who are trying to help in Syria. So you, you mentioned the rebuild of Syria. Where do you see the situation in five years? What is the long-term plan, particularly British development aid for rebuilding Syria once the war is over? Well, it, it is to change tempo once the war is over and peace has come, and once there's a peace to implement. And I think, as I say, that will be there will be British money behind that process, British companies, British skills, I hope, will have a big opportunity to make their contribution. I hope that the rebuilding of Syria will be through contracts let internationally in a very transparent way so that the most efficient businesses can rebuild Syria for the best price. And it's a process that needs to be owned by the Syrians but financed internationally by the international community. So that would be how I would expect it to happen. I would expect Britain to play a big part both in terms of the rebuilding through the excellence of our contractors and companies and also through making a proportionate contribution to the cost of the rebuilding, which you know will require many hands to do and everyone must bear their fair share of that burden if Syria is to emerge from all of this. And Britain, in additionally and thirdly, has a speciality through international development. We are very good at the process of stabilisation. We know how to do it. We know how to galvanise and bring together 
those elements which make up stabilization and can in the early days restore the flow of water and electricity and all these basic things upon which progress will depend and I have no doubt that Britain with its international development commitment and knowledge and expertise will be doing just that. So to follow up, I'm wondering if you could share with us your insight on Syrian refugees eventually returning to Syria after the war. Well, I don't think you can really make people return. You have to incentivize them to return. And of course, those who are displaced inside Syria, the IDPs, they will be the easier ones because they will not be that far from where they lived and hopefully can return when there is enough peace to incentivize them to do so and they can start in the rebuilding. So in some ways they're the easier elements. You've then got the people who are in camps around Syria and it will clearly be very much in the interest of the host countries which by and large have been so generous in looking after people that they that people leave and go back and those host countries will want to get a benefit from that in terms of the contracts for rebuilding and in terms of trade across the border once peace comes and normal business resumes. But returning those people will be more difficult, but living in a camp is a horrible life, and so there's quite an incentive to go back. And then you come to the more difficult element, which are those who have travelled a long way, often in great danger, and may be making their way in another country. And I suppose there are two different categories. There are those, like the doctors I talked about in Coventry, where I think they should be persuaded to go back, but if in many cases they will become become citizens of their new countries, and it's a human right to be able to move freely, and if they are in our country and if they've received citizenship, they can't be obliged to go back. It's a question of whether they and their families and their extended relations want to do so. But there will be others who are being looked after as refugees in a host country who should go back and they need to be incentivized to do so. And I think that's something which all countries will need to address in their own different ways. And in in Britain, certainly, when it comes to people who have sought asylum or who have been uh, given asylum because of the war in their countries, certainly, you know, we look always at whether or not we can help them to resettle in their country if they wish to do so either by giving them a grant or by giving them some training so that they can go back to the places where they lived and were born and existed before the crisis and the fighting started. So there's a raft of different categories of refugees and there's a raft of different opportunities for them in returning to rebuild their country. How can those of us here in the US or in other parts of the world get involved or try to improve the situation? Is there anything we could do from here? Well, I think we all have a voice. We can speak out. And certainly in a community like Harvard and Massachusetts, there are lots of people who have very strong views and who want to see this crisis resolved and who have ideas and thoughts and so forth. And lobbying continuously to try and make sure that progress is made on these talks, taking an interest in what is happening in Astana and in Geneva and putting pressure on politicians here in the Senate and in in Congress to lobby the US government to perhaps take a more constructive approach to Iran or to take a more constructive approach than America has hitherto taken in what is happening in Syria. I think certainly putting pressure on politicians and opinion formers in the US that 
this is not a country a long way away about which we know nothing and can do very little, but actually somewhere with which we should engage more constructively. That's one thing that people can do. Other people who are engaged philanthropically or who work with immigrant communities, America is a land of quite extraordinary generosity and philanthropy that will be needed greatly in Syria as part of the rebuild in the future. So America has a role to play there, but also in terms of American companies and businesses which have the expertise and the skills and hopefully the value for money to take part in rebuilding in Syria. And also when the international conference, the donor conference takes place, Britain has pledged a billion dollars already. Uh, it will take far, far more than that, and I hope Britain will pledge more. But America is the wealthiest country on earth. I hope will also pledge a support in those donor conferences as well. And there's expertise and there's academic links between Harvard and perhaps universities which today are suffering greatly in Syria. But Aleppo, which was a great seat of learning, one of the great civilized cities of the world, now in rubble and dust. I hope that town and city will be rebuilt and maybe there'll be twinnings and uh, relationships which can be existed through American academia here in this university and former universities and centres of learning in Syria which will hopefully rise from the dust and once again contribute to that civilization in the way they did in the past. So thank you but before I close I have one last question which is an advice for students who want to make a difference and spark change in the world. Well, you know, I um, have the privilege of coming here and meeting students. I also have the pleasure of doing something very similar at Peking University in Beijing. And the thing that strikes me, and it's a wonderful thing, is that the students I meet in Peking University in Beijing and the students I meet here have far more in common than that which divides them. So they are very dedicated to making the world a better place. They are absolutely at ease with globalization. They are very committed to using technology to earn out these big discrepancies of opportunity which exist in our world. I sort of think that although we cannot read history, we can see that even if in the future you know, there are squabbles and even fighting between China and America, These two generations, theirs in China and ours here in America today, have so much in common that the bringing the power of those generations together to make the world a better place, to use technology and globalization to achieve that, is a really uplifting and eminently possible outcome. And so when you ask about students making a difference and sparking change in the world, I think it is to combine with others, often in faraway places, which you can do through the miracles of modern technology, and advance an argument, advance an idea that helps make the world a more equal and better place. And, you know, that's an aspiration which the younger generation of students at university today has the ability to do, an ability denied to all previous generations because of modern technology and globalization. And so I would hope that that is an idea that will inspire today's students as they look at these awful problems which beset our world today. Thank you very much for your talk today and for this podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. If you want to learn more about CID's research and events, please visit cid.harvard.edu. See you next week.